Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. you guys came back honestly I thought maybe I'd be here by myself so this is great um this week has been so good so far hasn't it I mean it's I know it's we were moving slow this morning I don't know about you guys but every day that passes it seems like we get here later and later when we pulled into the parking lot somebody asked what time it was and they were like it's 8 59 and we were like yes <laughs> we made it and then somebody was like oh but I have to go to the bathroom so I've already lost you know I'm never going to get in there when it starts but we're here and it's great and it's nice to be tired after such exciting messages and how encouraging it is and it's like a spiritual boost isn't it it's like a spiritual b12 shot to come and just fellowship with each other and um, have that time together and um, it's so encouraging to me, and I hope it it has been to you guys too. Um, and I want to talk today about uh, passing our faith down to our kids because I think it's so important. It doesn't really do us any good when we come together like this and we have this fellowship and we learn all these things, but then our kids get lost along the way. And our kids, when they grow up, they go their own direction and they go away from God. So I just wanted to look... Um, about how we can um, pass our faith down to our kids in this session. And maybe you don't have kids, like Christine says, but maybe this is something that could help you in the future. Or maybe you have spiritual kids, and maybe this is something that you could apply when you're raising spiritual children, you know. But um, so I just pray that this would be, be of help to you guys in that way. So I want to start out by telling you, when I first met Brian, so this has been about 30 years ago now, and I started meeting his extended family, and we went to, it was probably a second or a third time, sometimes, like once a year, they have a big family reunion. So we went to his, I believe it was his uncle's house, and his family is sitting around in a circle, and they always tell stories, right? So Brian was telling this story, and um, I was trying to stop him because he told it the time before, right? I thought, I thought he must have forgotten. He's already told him this story, you know? So I'm trying to, you know, elbow him and say they've already heard it. I think that's like the worst thing. If I tell someone a story and then I tell that same person the same story again, forgetting that I told it to them. Um, so I'm trying to tell him, you've already told your family the story, but he, he ignored me completely. And he told the exact same story to them and they all laughed like they heard it for the first time. And I was like, this is weird, you know? And um, what I didn't realize is that I would hear these stories every year for the rest of my life. They tell the same stories that they request these stories. They're like, tell the fun fruit story, tell the shoe story, you know? So he tells a story and they all laugh and they think it's hilarious. And now my kids are telling these stories, these same stories 30 years later, when they have friends over, they're like, dad, tell the fun fruit story, tell the shoe story, you know? And so now these stories have been passed down in their family and our family, and I'm sure our kids will pass them down too. But the truth is we all pass things down to our kids, whether we mean to or not. Um, we pass down good habits and bad habits. We pass down our recipes, got to make chocolate peanut butter balls with uh, Jennifer and Emily, and it was a recipe they had got from their mom. We pass down our genes. We pass down traditions. Um, sometimes we pass down our problems. But I want to talk about how we can pass our faith down, how we can be purposeful in passing faith down to our kids. So I think about Samuel, the great judge and prophet of Israel, and he was a godly man. Um, he esteemed God's word very highly. His character and reputation, his reputation, it remained unblemished his entire life. And he's the one who put David and um, Saul both to be king. 
But I read in 1 Samuel 8, chapter 1, it says, It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his son judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his son walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, took bribes, and perverted judgment. And that's really sad. Samuel was this great man of God that God or God used in an amazing way, but his sons turned aside from God. How does that happen? So I've, I've grown up in church, and I've heard all the stereotypes, right? Pastor's kids are the worst. And the only ones worse than pastor's kids are missionary kids, right? <laughs> They're next in line. And we know the trend that we see today, young people, they grow up in church with their parents and then they move out to university and then they never return to their faith. Some polls say that the number of young adults who have grown up in Christian homes and walked away from their faith is as high as 50%. And then you have people of my generation now. I don't know if you've heard of this phrase, but now they're deconstructing their faith, right? They've gotten to my age and they're thinking, okay, now I have to rethink everything because everything my parents told me is no good and I'm gonna get rid of what I don't like and I'm gonna keep what I do like. So how does that happen? And what can we do to avoid that from happening? Because we want to further the mission. We want to further the mission, but part of doing that is making sure that we bring our kids along with us and that they have this real faith. Okay, so I asked, how do we pass down our faith to our kids? But I think a better question is, um, I mean, you will pass down faith to your kids. That's unavoidable. Because there are different kinds of faith that it talks about in the Bible. There's shipwrecked faith in 1 Timothy. There's little faith. There's weak faith. There's worldly faith devilish faith, but then there's also a real faith. And that's what we want to pass down to our kids. We want to pass down a real faith, which is the same as saying a biblical faith. So the question isn't, will you pass down faith to your kids? The question is, what kind of faith are we going to pass down to our kids? Uh, because, you know, make no mistake, we're going to pass something down without even trying. So we need to make that question more specific. So the real question should be, how do we pass down a real faith to our kids? So that's what I wanna talk about this morning. And I want us to look at the Bible to see how we can do that. And there's three things that we're gonna see this morning. We're gonna see the traits of real faith. What does that look like? We're gonna see the test of real faith. How do we know if we have it? And we're going to see the transfer of real faith. How do we pass that down? Okay, and I didn't do this. I need to tell you that. Brian did my PowerPoint because I would never be able to do that. I think it looks so good. Um, okay, the first one, the traits of real faith. What does that look like? If we're going to pass it on, then we must be able to see what is real faith? What does real faith look like? So if you go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, it says, I thank God, whom I serve for my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears that I may be filled with joy. This is Paul talking about Timothy. He says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded in thee also. So we, we can learn a whole lot about Timothy's faith from this passage. Um, the first thing we can learn is Timothy's faith is not half-hearted. That is why this passage is helpful. It tells us up front that Timothy had a real faith. He uses that, that phrase, unfeigned faith. And I thought, what does unfeigned mean? But a passage in Jeremiah, it really defines that word for us, this word unfeigned. In Jeremiah 3, verse 10, it says, And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah had not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly, saith the Lord. That's what unfeigned faith is. It's what it means. It means a faith that is wholehearted 
as opposed to half-hearted. And you can see that when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in Matthew 15, verse 7, he says, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth, draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So a feigned faith is a fake faith. It's half-hearted. It's hypocritical. It's when the words of your mouth, it does not match your heart. Have you guys ever encountered a flatterer, like a flattering person? Someone who is so kind, so encouraging. They are good at making you feel like they're on your side. They're on board. Their heart is with you. They want to be on team with you. And you only find out later that it, that it, none of it was true. They didn't really mean what they were saying. They were trying to accomplish what was best for them, and they're using you to do that by flattering you. All of us would say a person like that is fake. And that is what a fake faith is like. It's when we're saying these things, but we don't really mean them in our heart. But that's not the kind of faith that Timothy had. Paul said his was unfeigned. Timothy's faith was real. And Timothy's heart and his mouth matched. So that's one thing we can learn about in this passage. This faith that was passed down from Timothy's mom and his grandma, it was a real faith. It was wholehearted. It wasn't hypocritical. And his heart and his mouth matched. Second thing we can learn about Timothy's faith, this real faith, um, it says that Timothy had to deal with both tears and fears. So... Timothy's faith wasn't hassle-free. We learn from this book that Paul and Timothy are facing persecution. Paul is writing this letter from prison for the second time. And um, in verse 4, Paul remembers the tears of Timothy. He talks about those tears that Timothy had. And from what I read, some have suggested that these tears Paul is referring to is the last time Timothy saw Paul before he went to prison. And he was taken away and he was sad. He was sad because Paul was going to prison. So he also had fears, though. If you look at verse 7 in this passage, Paul mentions fears that Timothy had. Timothy's fearful that he might be thrown in prison as well for standing next to Paul. Timothy's carrying on preaching the gospel. And he's obviously thinking what's happening to Paul is going to happen to me as well. And it was right after this letter that Paul was beheaded. So that would obviously be a very scary thing. So what we can learn from that is that having real faith, it doesn't mean everything's going to go well for us, right? Real faith doesn't make our world perfect. It, a real faith, it has tears and it has fears in it. And if, you know, especially when God is moving, when God is doing a work, Maybe God is preparing you to step out and do a work for him, to move somewhere, to start something new. That involves a lot of fears and tears, and that doesn't mean your faith is fake. That's a real faith. So we're going to face hard times and persecution. Serving God is risky. But because we have faith in God, that doesn't mean that there won't be difficulties and dangers and disasters. In Acts 20, verse 19, it says, Serving the Lord with all humility of mind, with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, For when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. So being afraid and brought to tears does not mean our faith isn't real. In fact, it could mean the very opposite. We tend to think a real faith is always happy and brave, like Joel Osteen, right? You've always got the big smile on your face and everything's grand. That's not real faith. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be sad. If we're going to accomplish our mission, then we have to deal with, with both of those things. And we can deal with those things biblically. A great illustration of this is my daughter, Madison. You know, she came home with us this summer, and she went back to school at the end of September, and she has four new roommates that she's never met before. 
So she's moved into a house with these four girls. And obviously they didn't know who was moving in with them. So they did their research. They looked us up online to see who this girl was that was coming to live with them. So they could tell by my Facebook profile, Brian's, our social media presence, that we were Christians. And they did not like that. So as soon as Madison arrived, they asked her, do you believe in this stuff? And because she said yes, they have detested her the whole time she lives there. Two of them won't even acknowledge her presence in the house, and two will barely speak to her. Um, now, if she would have said no, her life would have been much easier the past couple of months. But that's not always real faith. Real faith um, makes life harder sometimes, a little more difficult. We have to deal with both. Timothy's faith was real, and it included some fears and tears. Um, so Timothy's real faith was passed down. It included fears and tears. But Paul tells us his faith was handed down by his physical family, right? His mom and his grandma. They passed down this real faith to him. These two godly ladies, in chapter 3, it tells us they taught him the Bible as a child. In 2 Timothy 3.15, it says, and that from a child, thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And this is a really important point in this passage, because it wasn't just religious tradition that they handed down to Timothy, right? They didn't just take him to church so that someone else could teach him. It wasn't traditions or motherly advice they passed down. She passed down real faith by teaching him the scriptures. And we know Romans 10, 17 says that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So by teaching him the scriptures, they're able to pass down this real faith to their son and their grandson. And I remember when I was a kid, um, my dad would, we would have dinner in the evening and then we would be watching TV or whatever. Do you guys remember those TVs that like took up half the room? I don't know if you guys are old enough for that, but they like had a wood encasement around them and they sat on the floor and they were massive. So we'd be in the living room, we'd be sitting around and um, watching TV. And I think we had three channels, you know, you had to turn it, like it was really hard to turn. And um, he would just come in and he would turn the thing off and he would say, come on, it's Bible study time. And we'd be like, oh, my gosh, in the middle of our show, you know, and then we'd go back in his room. He would read the Bible to us. We would talk about it. And then he always had these memory verses that we were trying to memorize, you know, and I didn't appreciate it back then as a kid. I thought it was like the worst thing ever. We had to stop what we were doing. But that was his way of trying to pass his faith down by trying to teach us the scriptures. But his Timothy's faith wasn't only handed down by his physical family, it was also handed down by a spiritual family. So in 2 Timothy verse, chapter 1, verse 2, it says to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So not only was he taught the scriptures from his grandmother and his mother, but he was taught from his spiritual father, the Apostle Paul. So Paul passed down his faith to Timothy. When you disciple someone, it's not only about learning the lessons, even though we do want to learn them, but it's also about passing your faith down to them. Um, Brian and I went to Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri, and that's where we met. Brian graduated, and technically he could have gone out and got a job at a church as a pastor. He was able to do that at that point. But his uncle told us, why don't you go up to Kansas City and learn there? He said, they're a great church, and you'll really learn your Bible. And we thought, well, that's a really odd statement after graduating from Bible college, you know. But we did. And um, we moved to Kansas City, and we loved it. And they hooked us up with this couple named Brian and Sherry. And um, we didn't have high expectations. We had just graduated Bible college. Brian was a jeweler. Sherry was an accountant. They were the sweetest couple. And um, they passed down their faith to us. They knew their Bibles. They loved their Bibles. 
They were such an encouragement to us, and we are so thankful for them. They passed down their love for God's word and taught us so much. So remember, as you're discipling, your goal is to pass down your faith to your disciple, not just the lessons that we're trying to teach them. And that's what Paul did to Timothy. He passed that down to him. And then the other thing we can find that I think is really cool in this passage about Timothy's real faith is that his faith was handed down by an imperfect family. If you look at Acts chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish, which was a Jewess, and believed, but his father was Greek. Timothy's faith didn't come from a perfect family. This passage points out that his mother was a Jewish woman and she believed, and it only tells us that his father was Greek. It doesn't say that he believed. When we compare this to our main passage, we see that Paul makes no mention of his father. We can safely assume his father wasn't a believer. You don't have to have a perfect family to have a real faith. Maybe your parents aren't believers. Maybe your home is broken or relationships within the family are less than desirable. But no matter what you've had to endure in your home, you can have a real faith like Timothy, and you can pass that down to your kids. So the, po the point I'm trying to make is that real faith doesn't just happen on its own. It's passed down. It's intentional. It's passed down through physical families, spiritual families, and our imperfect families. But it's passed down. That's how we get it. Just like those stories my kids are going to tell for the rest of their lives. Those have been passed down on purpose. So that is God's plan for real faith. Pass it down one to another. So the traits of real faith, it's not half-hearted, it's not hassle-free, and it's handed down. Okay, so now we know what real faith looks like. We've got a definition of a real faith. So then we should ask, how do we know if we have it? Do we have a real faith? And there's a test that we can take. There's a test of real faith. And to answer that question, I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. In this passage, Paul is attempting to prove that his faith is for real. In his words, he is having to prove that he is a true minister of God. This passage provides us with a clear test for our faith. So he's got a lot of lists here. He says, but in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God. That's another way of, say, approving. We're proving to ourselves that we're ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. That was a lot, it's a lot of words. But to put it simply, this passage says that our faith is proved by what we endure, by what we suffer. So in the first four verses of this passage, he used the word patience to begin. He says, approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience. So that word patience, it means suffer or endure. And this is kind of a heading for the list that follows all those words after that. Um. All the things that Paul had to endure because of his faith. So we have three lists here of nine things. And I think this is significant because what's the biblical number for fruit, right? Number nine. Three lists of nine things here. And then Christ says it's by your fruit that you shall know them. So our fruit is what comes out of us when we suffer. suffer and that's evidence of our faith. So the first list of nine things, it says in afflictions, necessities, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors, watchings, fastings. 
Those are our circumstances that we live in. Sometimes we live in really hard circumstances. Paul endured many difficult circumstances in his life. Everything by a want of basic necessities to moments of intense prayer and fasting, even to imprisonment. And through it all, he demonstrated godly character. That's our second list of nine things here. This character by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, the Holy Ghost, love unfeigned, the word of truth, the power of God, the armor of righteousness. So in the midst of these difficult circumstances, that first list of nine, he has this character that comes out, that second list of nine. He displayed those things in that second list. He displayed the power of God, proving he was covered with the armor of God. He displayed godly character in the midst of difficult circumstances. But he has a third list here. This is Paul's third list of nine things, and it's conflicts, right? We don't always just have hard circumstances. Sometimes we have really hard conflicts in life. And he starts it off with by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report. So when his enemies acted dishonorably toward him and speak evil against him, he would respond by acting honorably. He would respond to their evil report by living a life of good report. And then he tells us how this plays out. He was accused of being deceived, but he would respond by being true. His enemies would say he was unknown, that he was a nobody, but he would say the gospel is well known. God is known. He wants to make sure Christ is known. They constantly tried to punish and kill him, but he would respond by living for Christ. They tried to make him sorrowful, but he rejoiced in the Lord. They took everything from him, but he responded by making many rich in Christ. So this is how he would respond to circumstances and conflict. He would respond with godly character, and he would respond biblically and with honor. This is how we know that we have real faith, by the things we endure and how we respond to hard circumstances in conflict. But this test isn't just for us, because we're not just proving to ourselves when it says to be approved. We're also proving to our kids, because they can see how we respond too. Our disciples can see how we respond too in these hard situations. What do they see? Do they see godly character? Do they see us respond with honor? So like one year when my kids were little, we had a birthday party. I can't remember if it was for Hudson or Caitlin, but we'd rent out a hall and we'd invite their class to come. And I think I hired a magician that year. And he came and he set up his table and he had all of his tricks. And the whole class sat on the ground in front of him. And I was in the back doing the, getting the food ready for when they were done so they could have lunch. So I got everything set up and he was still doing his show and I walked out of the kitchen and I had a different perspective to the kids. I could see behind the table, right? I could see the sleight of hand movements that he would use that amazed the kids, the magic, you know, I could see what he was really doing. And that's how our kids can see us, right? They see behind the curtain. They see our everyday life. They see how we respond at home. And um, they see what's real. It's easy to come to church and put a smile on our face, act like everything's okay, and fool people. We can do that. But with our kids, we, we can't do that. So how do we take this real faith and how do we pass it down to our kids? Because we want a real faith. We don't want a fake faith. We want this real faith. So how do we take that and how do we transfer that to them? So I want to say one thing here before we start about transferring our faith to our kids. When we see what the Bible says about how to pass this down, and this is really important, um, we're not dealing with promises, okay? We're not dealing with promises here. We're dealing with principles of how to pass this down. So if your faith is for real, your kids can still go wrong in spite of you. 
And if your faith is fake, um, your kids can still go right in spite of you. Um, it's important that we recognize this, that it's not a promise, but a principle. All we can do is pass down our faith biblically and trust God for the results of that. It's not for us to be pointing fingers and saying they have bad kids, so their faith is fake, right? They have good kids, so their faith is real. This is not necessarily the case. Our Heavenly Father is a perfect father, but his kids in the garden, they rebelled. We are dealing with free will here. A principle is different than a promise. So like there's a principle that says if you um, eat right and exercise that you'll be healthy. That's a principle. It's not a promise because I've known people who that's their whole life is eating right, exercising. They look amazing. They go to bed one night and then they just never wake up in the morning, right? It's not a promise that if you eat right and exercise that everything will be okay. Um, a promise says this is going to happen no matter what. But a principle says if it's going to happen, then this is how it will happen. So you can't pass down a real faith that you don't have. That's the principle. You cannot reproduce what you want, right? If you have an apple tree, you can't produce oranges. That's the principle. Passing down your faith must be done on purpose. It will not happen by chance. Your child will grow bigger, but that's not the same as growing up. So we must pass this down on purpose. Um, again, these are not promises, but they are principles that we can't ignore. Um, we can't be fake and hope that someone else will train our kids. So I want to look at this passage in Deuteronomy about how we can pass this down. How do we pass a real faith down to our kids? And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 12. I think, yeah, there we go. So I'll just read it real quick. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house, and on thy gates. And it shall be, when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities, which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things, which thou fillest not, and wells digged, which thou diggedest not, vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantedest not. When thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So, well, again, that was a lot of words. This passage gives us a clear instruction on how we can pass a real biblical faith to our kids. So the first thing we can see in that passage is real faith must be in you first. Before we can pass it down, we have to have it. It says, love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And it says, these words shall be in your heart. So this is God's principle. This is the natural order. Everything reproduces after its own kind. So his words must be in our heart first. We can't pass down what we don't have. The second thing is that a real faith must be taught. But how should it be taught? We have different ways here that this faith can be taught. It can be taught formally. It must be taught formally. It says in verse 7, Teach them his words to our children diligently. So there's specific things that we want to teach to these kids. You can see the specific things they were meant to teach if you read down further to verse 20 to 25. But we know that we're also supposed, we're also supposed to teach our kids specific things. We're not passing on a feeling. We're not passing on a habit. We're not passing on a tradition. We're supposed to pass down doctrine to our kids, and that has to be taught. 
It's important because without it, our faith becomes about feelings or emotions. We know 2 Timothy 2.2. It says, The things that thou hast heard of me, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. When, you're, when your kids are old enough, teach them the doctrines that they can understand. Disciple your kids so they have the right doctrine. So we have to teach them formally in, in a formal setting, our kids, but we also have to be diligent about it. Verse 7 says we have to teach them diligently. And this word uh, in verse 7, diligent, it means to inculcate. That means to instill in someone by persistent instruction over and over and over. When, again, when I was a kid, <laughs> my dad, on his way to work, would drive us to school and we would all load up in his car. And I'm not kidding. It was every day, every single day he would say, hey, kids, what day is it today? And we'd be like, it's Tuesday. And he'd be like, no, what day is it today? We'd be like, it's the third because we knew what he wanted. He would say, no, what day is it today? And we would have to say, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will be glad and rejoice in it. Every day, it never failed. But that was instilled in me. So every day that I have a bad day, or I'm frustrated, or I want to quit, or I'm angry, I say that verse in my head. This is the day that the Lord hath made. I will be glad. Not that I want to be glad or I feel like being glad. I will be glad. And we can instill those verses in our kids. We can pass those down. We have to be diligent about it, though. So this happens intentionally. It's vigorous. It's not something that happens by mistake. Proverbs 22, 6, we know this verse, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. But we also, we want to be taught informally, not just formally, not just diligently. Oh, thank you. That's great. But informally. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> verse 7 also says you should teach as you go. We can see that in verse 7. So we're always looking for these teachable moments when you can instruct and reinforce what you're teaching formally. We can do this when we're sitting around the house or we're out for a walk or at bedtime around the breakfast table. I'm sorry. Um, for us, this happened around the dinner table a lot. We had, our kids went to public school in England and they had this class all of them went through it and it was you know every kid in public school had to take it. it was once a week it was a whole class period but it was called personal or yeah personal development I believe right <clears throat> that brought up so many topics of conversation for us around the dinner table um they would teach our my my kids our kids they would teach them how to have safe sex the LGBTQ movement, the trans movement, they were all for all these things, you know. And so the kids would come home and say, well, you know, what about this? What about that? And that was our time to be able to talk to them and teach them. Well, the, actually, the Bible says this and the Bible says that. We had a lot of interesting conversation on those days. And um, but we can, we have that opportunity just to sit and talk. It doesn't have to be formal. It doesn't have to be prepared. We can make that an everyday part of our life. The other way it can be taught is manually. In verse 8 to 9, he tells the Jews to wrap the word, these words around their arms and their head and write them on the doorposts of their house. And that's another way to remember and instruct both them and their children. So one thing we notice about this that's not book learning, right? They're not sitting down. They've, they've got it on them. They've got it on their house. It's a physical activity. It's done with their hands. And one way we can apply this today is that we can help our children live out what they're learning. We can teach them manually about their faith. Um, so not just learning theology, but experiencing it. 
a manual kind of teaching. And we can help them put their faith into practice and get them involved in ministry. And one way we would do that over in London is we always had our kids participate in what the church was doing, um, whether it would be the coffee bar or whether it would be the sound system or whether it would be going out on the high street and handing out tracks. Even Stefan years ago would come out with us on the high street and try to talk to adults about their faith. You know, you can bring them with you, take them with you, teach them manually. Even when we came here to Midtown, we told our kids, you need to find a way that you can serve the body. How do you get involved? How do you put your faith into practice? <clears throat> but it also must be taught informally. It's another way. Or no, I already did that one. I'm sorry. I got my notes mixed up here. There we go. Another way is taught visibly. So another thing we notice about these things, they would wrap around their arms and heads, is that they're visual. They can see them. They were not only a manual exercise, but a constant display to see. And, you know, we talked about this before, but that's us. We can be that visual display for our kids, for our disciples. We can visually display what we're trying to teach them. Philippians 4, 9 says, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me. You know, when we talked about being able to prove our faith, that's obviously visible because Paul could see that in Timothy. He said, you have the real faith. It's visible. And our kids should be able to see that in us. And it should be constantly displayed in our home, through our behavior, in our heart attitude. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I'm more of a, a private person. I don't like to talk about hard times. I don't like to talk about hard things, especially with my kids. I always want to protect them from those things. But Ryan's a little more opposite to me in that area. So he's very open about, hey, kids, we're, we're doing this and we don't know how we're going to do it. So let's pray. Or, hey, we need to buy a house. We have no idea how we're going to do that. Let's all pray. And we can involve our kids in the hard times and have them pray with us, and then they get to see the victory, and they get to see how God provides. Um, so that's another way they can visually see that in our lives, is they get to experience it with us. Um, children are visual, and they learn how to be adults by imitating their parents. <clears throat> Uh, there's a quote um, from Mark Twain, and it says, Children are natural mimics who act just like their parents, despite every effort to teach them good manners, right? Mm -hmm. They learn so much from watching us, um, and that's what they pick up. We would rather have them do the do what I say, not what I do, but that's not actually how it works. So at the end of this passage, Real faith comes with a warning. Verse 10 to 12 warns them that when they come into the land and enjoy all the blessing um, that they did not earn from themselves, he's very specific to tell them they didn't earn this blessing. Um, they're not to forget God. That's what he says. And that warning applies to us too. If we've been delivered from sin by the blood of Christ, then we've come into our promised land and we did nothing to earn that. Um, but there's a danger there because when we start to enjoy all those blessings, that's when we forget God and we forget to instruct our kids formally, informally, manually, our own faith will grow weak and even carnal. And then that's what we pass down to our kids. So we have to heed that warning. We have to heed it. We, we have all these blessings in Christ. We did nothing to earn it. And it's so easy to drop your kids off at Sunday school on a Sunday and forget to teach them yourselves. But they have to see it in our life. They have to see that it's for real. So I'll just conclude with um, this illustration. In ancient Greece, 
they had a way they would pass sensitive messages over long distances. They had these things called message sticks. It was a tube and it was sealed, um, so you could see if it had been tampered with. A messenger wouldn't carry it all the way, but he would carry it to another messenger and they would keep passing it on. That was where we got the relay race in the Olympics. And Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 9 that we're in a race, right? We're racing to win the prize. Our Christian life is likened unto a race so that we can win crowns. But we forget sometimes that it's not a marathon or a sprint. We're in a relay race. And the responsibility of a runner is to pass that baton on to the next person. That's our whole job as a parent, as disciples. We're trying to pass that baton. They should see the traits of real faith in us. They should see the tests. When the tests come, they should see that real faith come out, that fruit of the Spirit. And we're supposed to transfer this real faith to them so that they have it. So that's how we run this race, and that's how we can pass down real faith to our kids. And I think I finished really early again. Yeah. Yep. If you have any questions, yeah, I'd be happy to. When you say somebody, do you mean like your your kid or just like like a disciple? Um, well, if obviously if it's a sin issue, I probably would sit down and talk to them. And and uh even if it was a concern, you know, I would probably maybe bring it up. I don't know what the issue is or what exactly you mean. Um, but there is a, you know, a place for people just to be able to try out and stumble and fall and learn. And so I, I think that depending on what it is, I think it just takes wisdom to discern. It's hard to say, you know, when you don't know what that issue is. Yeah. That's awesome. And they come with good questions, though, like challenges and mm. stuff like that. So how do you encourage your children to maybe study it out, to maybe have an answer, but to not be discouraged and to not get wrapped up into other beliefs? Mm. So the family's coming to you with questions? Oh, the quiz. Right. I can't think of anything specific right now, but they'll challenge his faith, basically. Yeah. 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 I don't want him to get stuck in, like, spending too much time investing to a person who will not listen, but he really cares about it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we had to deal with that, too, because, you know, they taught every faith in school to our kids as if it was the real faith. You know, they kind of believe all faiths are right. And so our kids would come home with questions and I would always, you know, we'd always point them back to what the Bible says, you know, and I think that's really all you can do is point them back, help them to understand and take the, the specific questions that they, his friends have and try to answer them and help your, your son to understand or help them to understand, you know, and God's word is really powerful. And, um, just helping them at that age, you know, whatever age they're at to try to grasp it and understand it. I remember one time we, when our kids were really little, I don't even know if Matt to do, I had this idea that we should do this formal Bible study. Like I had when I was a kid, you know, like once a week, we should just gather all the kids in the room and uh, have this formal sort of kids Bible study with them. And 
Stefan, I think, was maybe one. He was really little, like a baby. And so Brian was all into it. And he, we had this chalkboard. He brought the chalkboard downstairs. And he was, like, going to do this formal type of teaching. But our kids were so little. I don't, you know, he, in the end, he ended up kicking me and Stefan out. He told us we had to leave the Bible study. And I'm like, it's a family Bible study. You know, he's like, yeah, but he's too loud and he's messing everything up, you know? And, and then he had like way too many illustrations for his points. And we were like, okay, this is really hard work, you know? So I would say, make sure it's really age appropriate to what they can understand and what they can grasp and deal with. And I think it's, you know, and we were never afraid of our kids having questions about their faith, because I think that's a really good thing when they start thinking for themselves, okay, what does this mean? Um, and how do, how does that affect me and my life and my friends? And I think those are really healthy signs, you know? make sure that your kids did still like they were lower on your priority list. So you're not trying to start a church plant and reform everything you've got, all your time, all your energy, into trying to get this work going. What did you do to make sure that your kids knew they were a priority in your life? Um, well, I think they were babies when we started. So I don't, you know, Madison was the oldest and even she was maybe four at the time, four or five. Um, and there were things that I did have to miss out on, you know, we just, there's just things I couldn't do. And I knew that, and I was okay with that. Um, but we just tried to pitch in where we could, we spread our hands as far as they would spread and did what we could. Um, but, you know, Brian and I were both, uh, as much as we wanted to plant a church, our kids were also a priority. We didn't want to lose them in the midst of the work, you know? Because how sad would that be to plan a church, but then your kids not want to be a part. So I think I was really fortunate in the fact they were little. So I don't think they felt left, you know, uncared for. I don't think they were quite old enough. Um, they were babies. Um, but also we just always brought them with us. You know, we bring them with us to everything we did and um, just tried to make them feel as much of a part of the work as we were, because that was really important to us. Mm. What's a way that, you know, for me as a student person, mm. your experience would be a way to be helpful to the moms in my team? Oh, that is a great question, man. Um, For sure, you know, like I said yesterday, I didn't get to go to a church service for three years. Um, So for sure, man, let mom sit and listen. To preaching and teaching give her that opportunity every once in a while to do that because um, it's really important that she get fed like everyone else you know and um maybe there's a way you could help mom around the house once in a while you know i just remember when i had four babies i i felt so overwhelmed um sometimes with just uh trying to keep up with a house and babies and ministry like opening our home to people that was really hard work because our home was always sometimes a mess you know and um i would just say support her in whatever way she may need um babysitting let her go out with her husband every once in a while just to have some time with him alone where they can talk and not feel the pressure of having to do that late at night when they're both exhausted and tired from the day um yeah, that's a really, really great way to think about that because that's important. Really important. Yeah. I was really small. Yeah. My dad would make me, my younger brother, ask with him and read our Bibles. And we would see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now my brother is no longer in that state. Yeah. And I am still. Mm, that's hard to say, you know, I think um, it could be a lot of things. I think your friends make a difference in school, you know, I think um, your heart makes a difference. Um, 
you know, it's it's hard because like we saw in Timothy, his father wasn't a believer at all, um, but his faith grew. Um, but then we do see people who have um, great faith and their kids turn. You know, I, I wouldn't have a specific thing to say of what happened, but um, I'm glad you're here with us. I can say that. <laughs> yeah. So I think that as believers, we all need to have, you know, a willingness mm. to be a part of, you know, yeah. um, but how, how do you have the discernment between like, being willing and that's actually. Mm. Um, well, I think it's, uh, it could be a number of things. I think it one, if, you're married, I think it's what your spouse, you know, if I'm wanting to be a missionary, but Brian was like, no, that's, you know, that's not where we're going. Then I would have to think, oh, well, maybe, you know, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't want that. That shouldn't be my desire. Um, so if you're married, maybe what your spouse's heart is, it's because you guys want to work together. Um, but also what leadership is telling you, maybe um, if you have the desire to go do missions and um, you have open doors, that would be another thing. Has God given you open doors to do that? Um, are the pastors confirming that call in your life, your leadership team? Um, so I think there's lots of boxes there that I would want checked, you know? Um, and I think that uh, like Brian, his grandfather had a quote that not everyone is called to missions, but everyone should struggle with that possibility. And I think that struggle, you know, would be um, praying, asking God for confirmation, open doors, um, and then approval from your leadership team, you know. But also then, you know, if you have a family, is that the way your husband is directing you? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, well, I would say maximize the time you do have. So maybe that's that you're investing in them on a Sunday during um, kids church. Um, and then just be really uh, purposeful about what you're teaching them, you know, teach them scriptures at their right ages if you can invest in them man do that on a sunday or maybe you know you have extra time in the week that if there's a certain kid that you want to take under your wing that you could spend time with and invest in them pray for them yeah How do you how do you deal with situations where you feel like you do need to let your child struggle mm. and get through the struggle? Yeah. But yeah. I mean that I know that that must be hard. You know, um, I would pray for them all the time. Um, I would ask for open doors to have those conversations with them. I would ask for wisdom of what to say in those conversations. Um, I would pray that God would provide circumstances in their life that he could use to um, not hurt them, but to heal them, to bring them back, you know, and I wouldn't stop. I wouldn't, I would, I would be that lady in the Bible that just kept bugging and bugging and bugging and bugging until the guy was like, just, you know, I, okay, you can have it. Just stop. I think I would be that kind of mom. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, not, no, I wasn't, I wasn't worried. I think our conversations were really good around the dinner table and, um, 
there, there was, there was a child that came to us and said, you know, I, uh, I don't know. My friends are all saying this and I'm the only one that's saying what we're teaching. And I just, I don't know which is right, you know, and they questioned their faith. They questioned, is this real? And, um, that was a little scary because you think, oh my goodness, you know, but it's also healthy because then they chose, you know, they had to make that decision on their own. Um, so it, it is scary, but it's really good too, because that means they're thinking about it. That means they're struggling with it and they're making that decision for themselves. And I think that's really important. I'll tell you one funny story about this class. Um, this was right before we came here. Um, Stefan calls this class personal depression class, right? So every day he would come home and he would say, we had personal depression class today. And I was like, okay, great. And um, so this day the teacher was asking the kids, should their age group be able to um, change gender? You know, should that be good? Can they do that? And uh, obviously the teacher was for this. And he went, or Caitlin, the girls went to an all-girls school. And they had put, um, uh, what do you call it? Non-binary bathrooms in an all-girls school, right? So this is how far this had gone. So, which the name was Bullerswood School for Girls. You think that... It was a girls' school, but they put non-binary bathrooms in the school. Um, so anyway, Stefan said the teacher was asking, should uh, kids your age be able to change their gender? So Stefan raised his hand, and he said no. And the teacher said, well, Stefan, why? Um, why shouldn't they be able to change their gender? And he said, he said, I'm not saying if they should or shouldn't. I'm saying they can't, biologically. <laughs> Kids can't change their gender. I just learned in biology class, we have chromosomes, you know. And uh, so they went on with the class. And um, after class, the teacher made Stefan stay after. Obviously, he wasn't happy with this answer. And as Stefan was telling me the story, I was getting so angry. <laughs> I was like, and he came up to Stefan and he said, you know, I really appreciate your input in class. But Stefan, how would you like it? If someone told you what you can and can't do. And Stefan just looked at him like he was crazy. He said, People do tell me what to do, my parents, you know. <laughs> and the teacher was like, Oh, right. He didn't have anything else to say after that. And he was like, Okay. <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, when we first got to England, um, we considered homeschooling. I mean, that was a decision I struggled with for a while because of that very reason. Um, but we didn't know anyone there. I mean, we had just arrived. We, we had no contacts. And we felt like we would really be isolating ourselves. Um, so we just never had a piece about that decision. So we did put them in school and I would say um, elementary school was okay. You know, they're still little. We still were very intentional about teaching them at home. Um, secondary school is a whole nother world. You know, it's a lot different. And um, I don't know, maybe you could answer this better. I know one of the things that we did differently as parents that a lot of parents don't do is we didn't allow sleepovers. That's one thing we didn't do. And I don't know if that helped or not, but it sure, um, our kids were very different in that area from other kids. And um, I think that protected them in a way. Um, and then, uh, we were just very intentional with everything they would learn at school, that we talk about it at home, we discuss it, and we were always intentional about sharing why we were there. You know, what are we, what's our purpose here? And as they got older, it, you know, it felt like we had to be even more intentional. 
But, you know, our kids, we say they're the greatest blessing that God gave us because um, they never rebelled in that sense. They would go to parties and then leave because when they got to the age of going to a party and then there was a lot of drinking, they just didn't want to be there. They didn't ever have that in them to want to do it. So in my mind, I think maybe the sleepovers, not having sleepovers helped us because that's when a lot of things happen is at nighttime and when you're around a lot of people and um and there's alcohol. In England, people drink a lot of alcohol. It just, that is the way it is. It's just part of their life. Um, and so we we kind of wanted to isolate our kids from, from that aspect a little bit. And so I kind of think that helped. Maybe it didn't. I don't know. Um, I don't know, but you tell me, you guys always felt a little separate in that sense. Yeah. I think... Uh, keeping your family strong, keeping your marriage strong. Um, in the beginning, it's it's hard, but you guys are going to have fruit. You're going to win people to the Lord. You're going to develop a small team around you, and you get to involve your kids in that, and they're going to see it. They're going to see it, and they're going to grow up in that. And God will use it in his life. He's molding your sons just as much as he's molding you. Brian and I often say he didn't call just us, but he called our kids too. He doesn't call just the parents. And it's hard to see your kids suffer. I get that. It is, but God loves them more than you do. And he knows. But I would say, you know, one thing that was important to me was our family did a lot of things as a family together that made it fun for the kids we didn't want it to always just be work I wanted them to enjoy it I wanted it to be fun and uh, spend lots of quality time as a family together grow in your marriage grow in your relationship with your boys and um, and pray for them Dad, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yes please this. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's really important. We're not perfect. You know, um, we're going to mess up. We're human. We're sinners. We have flesh. And uh, I think that apologizing allows them to see that you can have a real faith and you can mess up and you can make that right between them and the Lord. And uh, you can move forward with a clear conscience. Okay, well, we got five minutes till, so I don't want to make you guys late and get lost in line. Maybe you get early. If there is any other questions, feel free. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.